0: Well, our preacher uh, this morning uh, needs no introduction for most of you. Jeremy Caskey is one of our elders here at Redeeming Grace, also a full-time Air Force chaplain, and uh, just a very godly man and gifted teacher. So we are blessed to have him. You'll recall that Jeremy has very slowly been working um, his way through Malachi when he's been preaching. And so the way we like to uh, arrange things here at Redeeming Grace is uh, called expository preaching, where we just handle one passage of Scripture after another. Uh, Whatever comes next, wherever the text goes, that's where we go. Uh, No matter how uh, challenging it might be or no matter how much it steps on our toes, we're just committed to going wherever the Scripture goes. And uh, this morning, the Scripture goes to Malachi chapter 3 verses 6 through 12. So I'll read that, and then Jeremy will come up and explain it. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For in the days, or from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Let's pray. Father God, your son, Jesus Christ, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, calls us as your people, to not lay up treasure for ourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. God, I pray that you would do a little bit of heart surgery as needed For each of us. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I slightly hesitate to preach my passage. In a way, I kind of feel like Gideon in the book of Judges when when God first called out to him. Do you recall the story? God had called on Gideon, but before Gideon could go and do what God called him to do, God told him to tear down the large idol in the center of the town that Gideon's father had erected. Scared by the prospect of what the people might do to him, he tore it down in the middle of the night when very few people were watching so that very few would know who had done it. Today, I don't have the luxury of tearing down perhaps one of our own idols, Let me just say that people tend to be a little grumpy when one of their idols are torn down. The sermon that I seek to preach requires a tearing down of one of America's most revered idols, the idol of mine, my life, my money, me. Now, if there were not a God in the heavens who didn't tell us to think and act in certain ways, well, then you could chalk this message up to maybe greed or meddlesomeness. But there is a God in the heavens who tells us to think and act in certain ways, particularly in our view regarding money. The story is told of a man who had a horrible dream. He says, I dreamed a dream that the Lord took my Sunday offering, what I put in the church offering plate, multiplied it by 10, and this became my weekly income. He says, in no time, I lost my TV, I had to give up my new car, and I couldn't make my house payment. After all, what can a man do on $10 a week? So apparently, this man had put a singular dollar bill into the offering plate or offering box each week and thereby, in a sense, neglected the one who had given him everything that he had, which begs the question, the Lord took your offering, whatever money you gave to the church each week, multiplied it by 10, and made that your weekly income, how much would you make? would you be able to survive on it i read a statistic last year that if church members in the united states increased their giving to 10% of their income there would be an additional 139 billion dollars available for faith-based organizations and overseas missions how quickly might god through our obedience in that era in that area fulfill the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, if we would but be generous. But statistically, only 5% of churchgoers in the United States tithe, that is, giving 10% of their income to the church. A statistic, perhaps, all too telling of Jesus' corrective admonition in Matthew 6.21, which we just prayed. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question I would like to pose to you this morning is where is your heart? Or what do you treasure? The sad state of the church in America mirrors the sad state of Israel in Malachi's day. For we see the same neglect in today's text. Israel failed to comprehend that everything they had, all material and spiritual blessings came from God. God had commanded his people to give back a portion of their income, 10% precisely as a sign of their trust in him over and against trusting in their wealth. But they disregarded this command and thereby they robbed God of what rightly belonged to him. Do we likewise justify stinginess towards God when God has actually been even more lavish in his giving towards us. For instance, when was the last time that you or I had to pray for our daily bread as the Lord's Prayer calls us to? Because we didn't know where tomorrow's meal might come from. If we want to properly image God as we are called to be his image bearers, we image him in all facets. And one way we do that is by being generous to God and to his work financially. Now, should we fail in this, we limit our trust in him and thereby limit blessing, which brings us to the main idea of our text this morning. We see in our text that God curses self-indulgence but blesses the stewardship of his people when they faithfully use the resources entrusted to them in ways that honor Him, God curses self-indulgence, but blesses the stewardship of his people when they faithfully use the resources entrusted to them in ways that honor Him. Back in chapter one, verses one through five, God had reminded His people that He had sovereignly elected them to be His. They had returned from Persian exile about a hundred years before. They're still under Persian rule with their land reduced to a mere fraction of its former glory. As a result, they had forgotten God's love because their sinfulness had caused them to experience God's judgment. So God called them in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1 to give him their best, for he is worthy. Instead, they brought God their worst, offering sacrifices that were blind, lame, and sick. And so God cursed the priests in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, for allowing this, chastising them for their failure to give honor to God by seeking his instruction and guarding knowledge. And as the priests had gone, so had gone the people. One unfaithfulness led to another, which led to a practical outworking of unfaithfulness to God manifested in unfaithfulness in marriage. We see this in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Now, the inevitability of this happening was no wonder, for God's messengers had failed to honor God and lead the people in the way that they should go. So God promised to them in chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5, to send his own messenger to both purify his people through trial and vindicate his people through judgment of sin. We looked at that last month when I last preached. Which brings us to chapter 3, verse 6, which says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not destroyed. Now, if God were anything less than perfect, we could only hope that he might change, and change for the better. If you've ever had a mediocre boss or mediocre employment You can only hope for a better boss or better employment when you or they leave. And sometimes it feels like you're really just taking a chance that it's not actually going to get any better. In fact, it could get worse. But what a comfort to know that with God, it doesn't get any better, and it doesn't get any worse. Given his manifold perfections, what a comfort, what a consolation to know that God cannot change. He cannot get any better. And being perfect, completely holy and righteous and just and gracious, he also cannot get any worse. Therefore, he does not change, we see in verse 6. He's perfect in knowledge, omniscient. Perfect in power, omnipotent. Perfect in presence, omnipresent. And because God doesn't change, his covenant promises to them hasn't changed. And because God's covenant promise hasn't changed, his people, it says in this verse, shall not be destroyed. And so you may ask, what is God doing? Rest in the knowledge that we serve a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And what should that produce in God's people? We had determined last time that that should produce worship and trust, that everything that God allows you and I to go through serves ultimately as a means of our refinement. And part of that refinement, part of that worship, part of that trust and dependency comes in this next section of scripture that we're going to look at today. Verse 6, you see, serves as a connection point between two sections in the previous section, the people had thought that God would no longer judge sin. Well, here he reminds them that he remains both just and holy. He will judge. He will purify them, but he will not destroy. Which brings us to our next section. Though he will not consume, we see in verses 7 through 9 that God curses self-indulgence. We see in verse 7 that God's blessings Require faithfulness. From the days of your father, he says, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God had not changed. He hadn't flipped the script on them. This was not a policy revision where a somewhat inadequate law was being replaced by a better one. No, God's law was in effect. It just wasn't followed By God's people. And yet look at the mercy he extends here. He doesn't consume them in verse 6. And here in verse 7, he offers return rights. You can come back. I will receive you. God stands mercifully ready. God had not been deficient. He hadn't turned his back on his people. In fact, it had been quite the opposite. They had been deficient. They had turned their backs on him a trope all too familiar to us, for we do the same, don't we? And so this is a call to repentance. That's what God means by return. But they question God, how shall we return? Well, might I suggest that there's only one way? I I need not suggest, for God's word explicitly states that there's only one way the way, the truth, and the life through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I hesitate to gloss over this. Otherwise, everything that follows in this text might appear as if one could merit or purchase God's favor through good financial giving, through good stewardship. In fact, this is the controversy that sparked the Reformation in the church, where the Roman Catholic Church offered its people indulgences, that is, a a means of buying one's way out of purgatory. Friends, only God can merit his own favor, for only he is perfect enough to not require change. And he merits his own favor by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins by his death on the cross. But that hadn't yet happened in Malachi's day. What we look back on, they looked forward to, awaiting what was promised according to Hebrews 11. Until that day, they so struggle in their obedience that they have forgotten God's word, leaving them to wander in ignorance, asking questions for which they should have already had answers. But they didn't know God's word as they should, and so they ask questions already revealed in his word. Isn't it often the case that we have questions Questions perhaps that have perhaps already often been answered in God's Word, if we would just but read it and know it. And so I ask you this morning, how well do you know your Bible? Because God has certain things He wants you to know. And what He hasn't already revealed can honestly probably wait until heaven, where we will have an eternity to figure it out, Right? So God is going to specifically answer them as to what repentance and trust looks like in in their case. That comes in verse 8. Trust God, proving that trust by trusting him with your finances. He asked the question, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So God had commanded his people to give a regular portion of their income, 10% to be exact. That's what tithe means. Proving that they not only trusted God through lip service, but through tangible financial dependence as a realization that all good gifts come from above. At its heart, this has to do with stewardship, with rightly using God's gifts for God's glory. Now, this can be demonstrated in a myriad of ways, from rightly stewarding time, rightly stewarding talent, and more to the point here, rightly stewarding finance. And let me just say that we have a gross tendency to misuse and waste all of these, don't we? But I want you to notice the tone of address here. It's not just stinginess being addressed, it's robbery, it's serious, it's stealing what rightly belongs to God. Now, we often, I'm I'm guilty of this, now we often use words like my money. If it were ours, it wouldn't be robbery. Will man rob God? It's God's money. And those who argue that the tithe is no longer operative for New Testament Christians miss the point of this passage. So often we read the Old Testament wrongly, consoling ourselves that this or that was meant for Israel and has no bearing. We are under no obligation. And thereby we miss the lesson that it teaches to all of us. We shouldn't ask how much income can we keep, but how can we best steward God's gifts to us? How can I show that my trust is completely in the Lord, not giving financially out of a reluctant obligation, but giving financially out of a joyful expression of love from a regenerated and redeemed heart, stewarding finances and time and talent for God's kingdom rather than my own? In other words, we should ask, how do I obey the spirit of the law, even if not called upon to obey the letter of the law? One tangible way we do that is through financial giving to God's work. That's part of why we have that black box in the rear of the room. It's not just for connection cards, though we welcome anyone and everyone to fill those out. It's also for God's people to give to God's work. Brothers and sisters, Christians in the New Testament era did not give less than 10% to God's work, but oftentimes more as a show of gratitude and trust in what Christ had done for them. They and we, more than any of God's people in the Old Testament era, had more for which to be grateful, for we have Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm grateful I get to be the one preaching this today, for I receive not a cent of financial compensation from this church. Pastor Josh, rightly receives his wages as he has every right to according to Scripture. According to 1 Timothy 1, verses 17 and 18, he as our teaching pastor deserves his wages. Or 1 Corinthians 9, 11, it says, if he has sown spiritual things among us, is it too much if he reaps material things from us? Concluding in verse 14, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So I'm grateful to have the opportunity to support God and his work here at Redeeming Grace in giving of time, talent, and finance. It's a joy. Far be it from me to try and guilt or coerce you into anything, I simply want to be faithful to preach these next verses in Malachi as I have slowly made my way through this whole book with you. So, so no agenda here for me. Let me just put that aside. No agenda. I'm not receiving any money, and neither am I preaching this because we're trying to get more from you. We're not trying to fleece you. This is just a way of, this is what came next in the book, and so I've got to preach it. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, I want to see God's blessings poured down in your life as you faithfully follow him. God doesn't need our money, but God does want us to demonstrate in a myriad of ways that we actually trust him. To be a doer and not just a hearer. And one way we do is give. Well, let's briefly look at this more in depth. So considering both the Old and New Testament teaching, how do we conduct ourselves regarding finances? We see four principles from the New Testament. Number one, we see that Luke 6.38 tells us that our giving affects our receiving. In other words, God stewards resources to you when you faithfully use them for his kingdom. And let me just say that you cannot outgive God. Romans 8:32 says, "He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?" Now that is not a promise that you will always have all the material wealth and blessing that you want but you will be cared for as well as or better than you deserve. Number two, 2nd, 1 Corinthians 16.2 tells us that our giving should be in keeping with our income. In other words, it's proportional to how much God has given you. It's the same principle found in the widow's mite, where Jesus commends an old widow for giving two small coins out of her poverty, which was proportionately more than the many coins the rich gave out of their wealth. Number three, 2 Corinthians 8 verses 7 and 8 tells us that our giving is an act of grace that shows others the genuineness of our love. You might say that giving shows others what God is like, that he's generous, and that our faith in him is genuine such that we want to be like our father in terms of generosity. John Piper says of this passage, Paul wants to play down commanding, proportionate, tithe-like giving, not in order to limit giving, but in order to unleash liberality that goes beyond strict proportion. Charles Spurgeon suggests that we should give as we love. We should give as we love. You know how much our Lord Jesus Christ loved by knowing how much he gave. He gave all. For 2 Corinthians 9, 7 tells us that our giving should be done cheerfully. Not reluctantly, uh, not with the thought, well, what's the minimal amount that I can give to get by? But how can I joyfully be a blessing as I have been blessed? Now, I will admit that this is the principle that I have struggled with the most. Sometimes I just don't want to be cheerful about it. In fact, I talked to my wife about it. I'll confess, I've been reluctant at times. Really, it was her that kind of pushed me towards this, being better in terms of giving. As a military member, as a service member, I'm used to doing my duty, whether I like it or not. I suck it up and I press on, but that's not the point. God is after our hearts. He's not after our accounts. He's after our hearts. He wants us to experience the joy of cheerful giving. And it is a joy when we open our hands, releasing that death grip of selfishness and control regarding money. Now, there are at least two dangers that we need to be wary of here. Number one, we can give to God and his work with wrong motives, stoking a self-righteous pride like the Pharisees who tithed everything to include their seasonings. While neglecting weightier matters, now, some of you know I'm a big barbecue guy. I've uh, been smoking low and slow, whether rain, shine, or snow. And I didn't anticipate that rhyming when I first wrote that. But that's I love to barbecue, and I love good seasonings. And my favorite seasonings come from a Texas company called Meat Church. I mean, what other seasoning is there for a pastor, right? Meat Church. Well, can you imagine me dumping a tenth of each container of my meat church seasonings like a Pharisee in the black box near the rear of the room? I mean, nothing might fuel pride faster than majoring on that sort of minor. Believe me when I say that none of our volunteers want seasonings dumped in that box. (laughs) But we can get so focused on giving in a legalistic manner that we start feeling... Pretty good about ourselves, right? Again, God is after our hearts here. We can give with the wrong motives. Or, number two, we can fail to give to God in his work, feeding a self-indulgent greed. Like the parable of the rich fool who tore down his barns to build larger ones, saying to his soul, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Not knowing his soul was required of him that very night. Such, it says, is all the fate who lay up treasure for themselves and are not rich towards God. So we need to be careful here. We don't want to stoke a self-righteous pride on one hand by doing the right thing with the wrong motive. And neither do we want to fuel a self-indulgent greed on the other hand, failing to do the right thing with the wrong motive. And should we fail in this, we see in verse 9 that unfaithfulness yields a curse. He says, you're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. They had returned from exile approximately 100 years prior to this. Perhaps then they could have more easily justified neglecting God when times were tough, when they were broke and rebuilding. Well, now it's just plain robbery. Right after they had returned from exile, the prophet Haggai had warned them to pay attention to God and to his house. At that time, they left God's house in neglect, opting instead to rebuild fancy homes of their own. By Malachi's day, they have now both tested and exhausted God's patience. And so he curses the nation. Their land would continue to be dominated and controlled by the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and later the Romans with silence from God for 400 years to come. But it didn't have to be that way. The solution is simple. Because while God curses self-indulgence, we see that God blesses stewardship in verses 10 through 12. I want you to notice that God's blessing comes from three places in these three verses. Number one, we see blessing from heaven in verse 10. Number two, we see blessing from the earth in verse 11. And thirdly, we see blessing from the nations in verse 12. We're going to look at these briefly. So let's look at blessing from heaven in verse 10. It says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there's no more need. When God says put him to the test, he's indicating that we cannot outgive him, that we can trust him with the gifts he's given us. If you think that giving to God will result in poverty, you're mistaken. He seeks to pour down blessing to the point where it says there's no more need. Now, I've seen this principle to be true in my own life, where I held on to income and just never had enough, only to later give it and never seem to lack. Because again, it's not about money, it's about my heart. Now, I understand that many of us have been so ill-used by others and perhaps have misused others ourselves that we treat God the way we treat other people, with kind of a wariness with an uncertainty that he doesn't quite have our best interest at heart, with a caution that he's perhaps going to pull the rug out from under us at some point. Has that happened to you with someone you've trusted? Because God is perfect and does not change, might I suggest that you can trust him without inhibition. He stands ready, it says, to open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. He gives blessing from heaven in verse 10. And then he gives blessing from the earth in verse 11. Because of their neglect, Israel had experienced pestilence that devoured their crops. Bringing in the tithe would cause that to stop. For God promises, it says, to rebuke the devourer so that it would not destroy the fruit of their soil and their vine should not fail to bear its fruit. All their efforts to cultivate good crops had been sought without seeking the Lord. They had poured infinite capital into the earth with little to nothing to show for it, for they had failed to recognize the giver of the gifts. Which begs the question, how much effort do we waste without seeking the Lord's face? without falling on our faces in prayer, asking that God would act for his namesake? Could we, like Daniel, pray that God would hear us, forgive us, pay attention to us, and act for us for his own sake, simply because we're his? Surely he can, and surely he will provide if we seek first his kingdom. And so I ask you this morning... What does your bank account look like? Is God at all reflected in it? Do you give to his work, to his church, to his missionaries? Further, perhaps even more importantly, what does your prayer life look like? Do you often proceed with your plans without reading God's word or asking what God would have you do? Do you spin your wheels in a frenetic pace of work? Forgetting to ask God's provision in the endeavor. He can do more in a moment, brothers and sisters, than we can do in a lifetime. Now that's not to suggest that we sit around on our hands and do nothing. God calls us to work and to work hard, but he's not asking us to futilely spin our wheels in the mud, but to anchor ourselves to him that we might have spiritual traction. And so he gives blessing from heaven in verse 10, blessing from the earth in verse 11, and finally blessing from the nations in verse 12. If Israel gave to God what rightly belonged to him, had they looked different from the nations around them, had they managed and stewarded their finances for God's glory rather than for their own comfort and ease, they would have seen the promise of this verse fulfilled where all the nations of the earth would have called them blessed, for theirs would have been a land of delight. Unfortunately, they did not truly heed the warnings in this passage and thereby did not fully receive the blessings promised. Now, in a sense, we all received the blessing promised because the blessing is God himself. But they didn't fully receive the blessing promised right here in this context. By the time that Jesus came upon the scene 400 years later, God's house had been made into a den of robbers. The religious leaders would tie heavy burdens hard to bear upon the people. Religious devotion had become a show. Personal honor sought above the honor of God. Even the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, would be crucified and killed at the behest of such leaders in order that one man might perish for the people so that the nation could go on with business as usual. Now, fortunately, that's not how it works. God does not abdicate his power and his plans cannot be thwarted. For their disobedience, their nation, their sacrificial system, their comfort and ease would be put down within a generation of Christ's death and resurrection. And even still, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. While each sought a kingdom of his or her own making, God brought his kingdom instead. He lived the perfect life expected, the life that we could not live. He died to atone for both their sins and ours. Buried, he carried sin away, and he arose in order that all who repent of their sins and believe that Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord now stand justified before God. And one day he will return for his people. The question is, will he find faith on the earth? Will we continue to rob him of what is rightfully his? Does the way we handle possessions show that we delight in God? What we delight in is what matters most to us. How would we finish the sentence, to live is what? To die is what? What are you here to live for? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Is that what you delight in? Is that what matters most to you? The way we recover our delight in God is not to just start giving, but to first remember why we ceased or never started to give to God's work in the first place. After all, God is after our hearts and after our trust. And only then give because he is the great giver who gives life and life more abundantly to all who seek him.